the recording? Okay, excellent. All right, so welcome back everybody from lunch. Did everybody have a good lunch? Yes? Everyone got enough to eat? Yes, more or less? And everyone ate mindfully? Well, that's not too bad, okay? That's not too bad. Uh, and I was very happy to see that you were getting a chance to have a bit of a chat and talk to each other. And this is part of the Eightfold Path. Curiously enough, do you want to read what the Buddha had to say about taking a vow of silence? You, you, you've done retreats before, yes. right? Did you take a vow of silence on retreats? Oh, yeah. Do you want to know what the Buddha said about taking a vow of silence? Yeah, yeah let's see that. Okay. <laughs> That'll be fun. Before we do that, we'll come to that in a minute. Before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of a background of what we're doing here. Now, up in front of you here is a slide for Sutta Central. Sutta Central is the website that I'm helping to manage. And can anybody... Okay, so the word Sutta Central... Can anybody tell me what the word Sutta means? Sorry? A thread. A thread. Ah, right. Okay, Sutta means a thread. Pretty good, yeah. Something like that. So this is all about sewing. <laughs> More or less. I mean, it's an interesting kind of metaphor because the, in English we say you're like, you know, you're weaving a yarn or you're spinning a tail or something, right? And uh, historically the reason for that is because that's because many of the stories that we have were passed down through women's sewing circles. And that was a big part of women's work. They're weaving the thread, sewing and telling each other yarns while you're doing it. And so this metaphor uh, was passed down. If you're interested in that kind of idea, Marina Warner wrote this great book, From the Beast to the Blonde. Uh, And uh, so she goes into a lot of detail showing how a lot of these stories that we have were passed down among women's sewing circles and then appropriated by blokes who then made them into Disney movies and made billions of dollars out of them. So that's called evolution. (laughs) And, okay. Anyway, so sutta is a thread. And uh, simile is actually given that the sutta is like like the dhamma is like a uh, garland of flowers. And if you don't have a thread to tie them together, then when the wind comes, they'll be scattered and disappeared. So the sutta is there to tie the dhamma together and to preserve it and to keep it for future generations. Okay, so the root meaning of sutta is a thread. Can anyone tell me, like when we talk about a sutta or a sutra in Buddhist contexts, what do we mean? A word, a discourse, a teaching? Okay, fair enough. And let me see. So... uh, Let's just give an an example. So uh, you've heard of the Satipatthana Sutta. Is that correct? Most people have heard of it? Okay, that's good. When I travel around, I don't know who people are, so I don't know what you know of or anything like that. So if if somebody hasn't heard... Is there anyone here who's never heard of a Sutta or what a Sutta is? It's okay. Don't be ashamed. That's okay. Everyone knows. Okay. Satipatthana Sutta, you've all heard of that. Can anybody tell me briefly what the Satipatthana Sutta is? No, not any of the bikinis, please, because that's cheating. You're experts, okay? Somebody, yes. Mindfulness of breathing. Satipatthana Sutta is mindfulness of breathing. Well, maybe, maybe 
maybe I didn't say it well, but it's... It certainly includes teachings on mindfulness of breathing, yes. Okay. But what is the Satipatthana Sutta? Okay, Four Foundations of Mindfulness is a translation of the word Satipatthana. Not a very good one, I might add, but it is a translation. But what is the Satipatthana Sutta? Well, Satipatthana Sutta just goes through four domains of mindfulness okay. and explains what are the categories to pay attention okay. to. It's like a guide. Okay, thank you. So the Satipatthana Sutta is a discourse, which is a guide to the four Satipatthanas. That's correct. So that's the description of the Satipatthana Sutta. But what actually is the Satipatthana Sutta? Like, like materially and physically, what are we referring to when we refer to the Satipatthana Sutta? Text. A text? Okay. No, that's, that, that's the four Satipatthanas. But when we're referring to the Satipatthana Sutta, what are we actually referring to? Somebody said a text, a discourse, okay. Right. Good, good, this is all correct, but, but like, what is it? Like, like physically, what is it? Like if I, if I say, you know, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, and somebody says, well, it's a device for getting people from one side of the harbour to the other, of course, yes, it is. Like, what is it? And you can point to it and say, you go there, that's what it is, okay? So I'm asking you to point to it and say, where is it? How, what, 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 physically, where, what, what kind of thing is it? Thank you. Thank you. Very sensible answer, right? Okay, something that appears on your computer, right? And... Or on a book, if I'm reading it in a, in a book, okay? Uh, but what exactly is it? So in, in, we, in the Buddhist uh, uh, traditions, we have bunches of scriptures, right? Those scriptures have been passed down for a long time. And those scriptures are today, or in the 20th century, were compiled into books, and in some of those books was something called the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Length Discourses. There's another collection called the Diga Nikaya, Long Discourses and so on. These days we put them all on digital format and you can read them on your screen, which we're going to do in a minute. Now, a discourse is uh, a teaching that the Buddha gives in a certain... Tell me if I'm correct, Okay. See, a discourse is a teaching which the Buddha gives in a certain time and place on a certain topic. Something like that? Yes. Now, with the Satipatthana Sutta, notice the use of the definite article there. The Satipatthana Sutta. We have one in Majjhima Nikaya, number 10, and one in the Diga Nikaya, number 22. Which one is it? Number 10. <laughs> Is that the one? And what's the DN one? I think they're both Chinese version and it's a Tibetan version. Right? So this is getting complicated, isn't it? <laughs> you thought... See, I, 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 you guys don't know me very well yet. So when we come down to this class, <laughs> you probably thought that my job would be to take something complicated and make it simple. No. 
My job is to take something simple and make it complicated. Yeah. Okay. So, right. So it's that. Now, uh, when you read the the Satipatthana Sutta, what does it say? So it starts out with something like, "Thus have I heard one time the Buddha was staying in Kamasutta." Is that correct? Okay. Very good. And and is that what the Buddha said? No. No. Why not? Well, I'm speaking in English, right? That's a, that's a problem. Okay, right. So, first of all, it's a translation, and secondly, it's a, it's, it's a package, right? It's a thing that's, which is put around the Buddha's words, okay? So, is the, is the Satipatthana Sutta, maybe is that the Pali text? Is that the Satipatthana Sutta? In, on, okay, so... On, here we have sort of central, it's a website. And sort of, as a website, it has a bunch of data, and we organize Buddhist scriptures and so on. And we have texts in different languages. We have root languages, Pali, Sanskrit, Chinese, Tibetan, and a few other obscure Indic languages. And we have translations in modern languages. So the Buddha said you should learn language, Dhamma in your own language. So we have translations in English and... Spanish and Portuguese and Indonesian and Sinhala and Burmese and Thai and Arabic and Klingon. (laughs) I think I'm joking. Why does no one take me seriously? So, (laughs) so when we read the suttas, we read suttas in translations, right? And where are we now? And we can read different translations, for example, in um, Sindarin by Galadriel. Oh, wow. so. <laughs> nice, right? That's very pretty. Very pretty. So any who any hardcore Tolkien geeks can read <laughs> the Meta Sutta. Sorry, this is in Sindarin. This is one of the elvish languages from, from the Lord of the Rings. No, 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 really. Yes, this is the Metta Sutta in the elvish language from the Lord of the Rings. There may be one or two geeks who have worked on Sutta Central. <laughs> anyway. So my point here being, so this is the Metta Sutta, and we see on, on Sutta Central we have, we, 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 we try to handle the Buddha's discourses. And one of the things that we want to try to, uh, to share with people, try to communicate through the way that we built the site and the way that we approach things is that like a, a Sutta is actually a whole kind of complex of things. So the Buddha taught two and a half thousand years ago, and he taught these different discourses, and they were memorized, they were passed down, they were put into collections. Later on, they were written down, then they were um, uh, translated, and so on. And so we have what well, the technical term we use in, inside Sutta Central is this card is a suttaplex, right? So it's a complex of information about a sutta, including translations, uh, parallels, and so on and so forth. So... Uh, this is what we deal with when we're working with sort of central is the suttas and the different parallels and uh, relations between different parts of the canon. Uh, so just to take a uh, 
Most of these don't have many parallels. What have we got here? The Kumara Panha. Okay, so we have here the Mangala Sutta. Anyone, people have heard of the Mangala Sutta? Many people? Okay, so in the Mangala Sutta we have this version here in the Kuddhakapata. There's another version in Pali in the Sutta Nipata, and there are two versions in Chinese. Uh, so these are, I believe, in the Chinese Vinaya texts, uh, and so they're sets of verses which have been translated from an Indic language, probably Sanskrit or Gandhari or something like that, into Chinese, and then preserved and passed out. No, actually, it's not a Vinaya text, is it? Let's say, uh, I'm not exactly sure what that is, maybe a Jataka-style text or something. Can anyone remember that? T200. Sorry? It says Dhammapada. Oh, okay, maybe it's in Dhammapada. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I don't read Chinese, but anyway. So this is what we do on Sutta Central. And so we try to present these in a way that is useful for people who want to just read suttas, whether you're reading it in English or in Klingon. And oh, I mean, seriously, the Klingons have been at war with the Federation for such a long time. <laughs> That surely there's got to be some of them who think to themselves, there's got to be another way. <laughs> right? Yes. Right? And we are there for them. We are ready for them. When they come, <laughs> we have the meta sutta that they can read. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. Okay. And so I talked about Gil translating the Dhammapada. He said, oh no, he interpreted it. I said, no, no, you don't get it. He translated it. He said, no, that's an interpretation. But that all of the translations are interpretations is what he's saying. Sure. And and also that we don't say, uh, it doesn't start Buddha, I Buddha, and I say this. It's always thus have I heard. So it seems like there's always this sense of bringing it into somebody's life. Right, right, yeah, good point, yeah. So this is, and this is, you know, what it's about. But look, there's actually um, friends of mine, uh, Vermal Anali and Rod Bucknell, did a translation of the Madhima Agama, and in the foreword they put a quote from an ancient Chinese scholar, like one of the, I can't remember who it was now, and the, the, the translation of the quote was, translation is interpretation. And so, I mean, we try to be, we try to have a sense of integrity about that, right? So you try to interpret it in a transparent way, right? But, but owning the fact that it is an interpretation is part of the process. And it's one of the key pieces that I learned from my friend Ajahn Brahmali. And he said, when you're translating, because um, often you reach points and when you're translating, you're not quite sure what it means. So I'll just do this slow water while we're going. And the, uh, but one thing that we can say with quite a high degree of confidence is that the Buddha was kind of probably fairly sensible. And that when he said things, that they probably meant something. So even if we're not quite sure, you should translate it as if it means something. We know that if you translate it in a meaningless way, you're almost certainly wrong, right? And this is, this is really meaningful for translators because very often you reach points in translation, you're like, actually, I don't quite know what that means, so I'll just translate it literally. 
The dictionary says this word means this, so I'll put that in there. Good enough. Right? I mean, sometimes you don't really have much of a choice and you have to do that, but m- most of the time you really just try and say, well, how can I translate this in a way that's meaningful? Yeah. But to come back to your earlier point about Venerable Ananda being the one who passes down the... the who said, thus have I heard, d- does everybody here know what we're talking about when we say that? Yes? No? Yes. Who's Venerable Ananda? Okay, yeah. Is that good? Everyone knows about that? Okay, so, uh, so I've now navigated through sort of central to Majjhimanikaya number one, and it begins with thus have I heard. Now, because sort of central is awesome, you could do that. And now we have the Pali and English. Yeah, I told you. <laughs> told you it was awesome. Okay. So, uh, so have I heard, Eva me sutang. Now, according to what the traditions say, is what you've said, that, that this is the word of Venerable Ananda who comes along and says, thus have I heard, and he's repeating what was recited at the first council. This is what the traditions say. So, again, just a bit of necessary background. During the Buddha's lifetime, the various discourses were preserved and memorized and passed down, and they were organized and codified soon after the Buddha's death in Rajagaha uh, at an event called the First Council. That's according to the traditional account. And the traditions tell us that the words ever me sutang, uh, which occur at the beginning, in theory, of every sutta, are spoken by Venerable Ananda uh, as a record of what he heard the Buddha say. Now, that's certainly incorrect. Why can we say it's certainly incorrect? Because the word thus have I heard occurs in other contexts in the suttas that make it clear what it means. The word thus have I heard is a signifier that indicates that you were not present at the events that you're talking about. Okay? It's in Pali, they have another idiom, which is sammukha me sutang. I heard it in the presence. And if you say, I heard this and learned this in the Buddha's presence, that's what you say. Sammukha me bhakavato sutang sammukha patigahitang. And if uh, there's, another, there's a discourse uh, where somebody is talking to Venerable Anuruddha, that's just an example, and uh, he asks Venerable Anuruddha, a question, and he says, ask him a question about the gods and about devas of various kinds. And Anuruddha says, well, that's a very rude question because you shouldn't be asking those kinds of things about a meditator's personal meditation experience, but nevertheless, I'll answer you. And he goes on to answer the question about the gods. And then the man he's talking to is silent for a minute and he says, it occurs to me, Venerable, that you don't say, thus have I heard which suggests to me that you must have been present there and actually seen these devas yourself and you're speaking from your own experience. Right? So you can see what's happening? If he'd said, thus have I heard, it would mean I wasn't there, but this is what I'm passing down as a rumor. Okay? So thus have I heard isn't the voice of Ananda because obviously he was there. I'll come back to you in a second. He was there at least much of the time. Right? And uh, so thus have I, so ever mesutang rather should be understood as the signifier by the early tradition to say that this is something which has been passed down by the tradition. A uh, later date became attributed to an under. Sorry, yes? Yeah, I'm still... Uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced because in the language, 
post everywhere. And then when Ananda was uh, choosing a particular introduction, introductory phrase, it's like a stamp that authenticity, he may choose it, but he didn't want to, you know, to have two phrases okay. to start his sutta. So maybe you're right, but I think it's not what you brought about. I think it's enough evidence to say that indeed it's Thank you so much. I am so thrilled to have somebody in the audience who's not just going to believe all of the rubbish that I'm putting out there. When, when I was in, uh, I did a conference in Australia some years ago, and I was, we had a, a chat with, there was an Aboriginal fellow who was doing a talk there, and one of the things that I learned from him, because you see, when they pass down their information and their education for their children and for their people, it really kind of matters we were talking in the car on the way down here about like people these days saying, oh, they don't have to bother learning math because who cares, you never learn it, use it in the real world, right? But for Aboriginal education, it's not like that because it's about where do you find water? And when those trees are flowering, that you can travel 100 kilometres down the coast and the fish will be coming in. And when you see the blue colour on those hills over there, that means that you know that the yams are starting to appear in the swamps down there. And so it's the, your map and your guide to the world. And if you get it wrong, you're stuck in the middle of the desert and you don't really have much to fall back on. So it's really important that these lessons are passed down uh, reliably and so on. But the problem is... Just as we have a problem that we were discussing earlier with um, transmission and authority and authenticity, they have the same problem because the essence. And I was told uh, I had another conversation with another Aboriginal elder who 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 uh, we sat down. We were talking, and the first thing he said was, "The essence of Aboriginal philosophy is impermanence." And when we look at it, we think, oh, it's this timeless land, right? It's timeless wisdom. No, no, it's about impermanence. It's about the changes. That's what they have to understand. And the fact that for a thousand years, people have passed down a song that tells of a waterhole there does not mean that there's going to be a waterhole there tomorrow. Yeah? So they have to know this. So, so every so often... They lie to their students, to their kids. They tell them, oh, there's a creek over in that hill, you know, go over there and, and find it. And there isn't a creek in that hotel, in that, in, that, in that hill. And they wander around the hills, thirsty for a couple of days before they make their way back. And the parents are like, well, you should have known, right? You should have seen that the birds weren't there, the flowers weren't growing. You should have been paying attention. Right? So they t part of the education is to teach them that you can't always rely on that old wisdom. Uh, and so I'm glad, I'm not, I, don't, I like, don't lie to you, like, not deliberately, but I'm glad that you keep that in mind, that uh, not everything that you might be hearing is necessarily going to be correct. So, so you've pointed out that, that, quite correctly, words are used in different ways in different contexts, absolutely, of course. Uh, so what reason do we have to believe this? Okay, so let me just say a couple of, couple of pointers. I'll just look at another passage in a minute. Just a couple of things. Number one thing is that 
when we are reading and interpreting ancient texts, our number one guide is the idiomatic usage within the texts themselves. And our primary way of learning is to first of all pay attention to those contexts that are clear and unambiguous. Okay? Now, a context like this is not clear and unambiguous, right? It just says, thus I've heard, and it goes on. It's not really telling us what this phrase means or what the context is. It's just sitting there. Whereas in uh, those contexts that I was t telling you before, uh, in those contexts, it is pretty clear exactly what it means in those contexts. Right? So, yes, it's true. It might mean something in a different context. But until we have reason to believe that, then we should, generally speaking, as a good textual procedure is to infer from well-known contexts to less well-known or less well-defined contexts. That's how we work. So that's one thing. But let me just come on to address that. Uh, where are we now? Oops, I just did that. Sorry. Uh, here we go. Um, let's have a look now. Okay. Oh, I was afraid we'd have nothing to talk about. Okay. Uh, we mentioned before that we uh, have the suttas. Now, another part of the Buddhist scriptures is what we call the vinaya. Right? Uh, oh, I am going to answer your question, but I'm just going to meander around to it a little bit. Okay, so I'll get there. So, vinaya. Who can tell me what is the vinaya? Rules. Sorry? Rules for monks. What about for nuns? Okay. Rules for monastics. Okay. So, so this, is the, this is the vinaya. Okay, it's not wrong, right? But it's not completely right either. So this is the vinaya. Let me open up a book of the vinaya. This is called the Kandikas. It's part of the vinaya. Let me open up a translation of this. Thus have I heard the Buddha was staying... I'm sorry, at one time the Buddha was staying underneath, under the, in Uruvela on the bank of the river Naranjara, paid attention to dependent origination arising and ceasing, and then spoke the verse, truly when things grow plain to the ardent meditating Brahman, his doubts all vanish, in, the, in that he comprehends things with a cause. Is that a rule? No. Point being that Vinaya includes lots of things including Dhamma teachings and stories and backgrounds and procedures and guidelines, some fantastic, very inspiring descriptions of how to keep your toilet clean. <laughs> right? I mean, these things are, like, super useful. <laughs> and so it includes many different things. But generally speaking, it's a guide or an education for Buddhist monks and nuns including rules, but also including a lot of other things about the lifestyle, which is giving you guidance for how we should be living, and so on. All right, so this is the Vinaya. Now, and, oh, and I should mention, like, there's lots of them, right? So here's Vinaya, there's the Pali Vinaya. That's usually when people say the Vinaya, that's what they mean. And here's like a Mahasangika one, and another Mahasangika one, Chinese and Sanskrit, Lokutravada, Mahishasaka in Chinese, Dharmaguptaka, another Dharmaguptaka in, in, in uh, Prakrit. Oh my goodness. Sarvastivada in Chinese, another Sarvastivada in Sanskrit, and Mulda Sarvastivada 
in Chinese, Sanskrit and Tibetan. Oh, and then another category with a bunch of other things in it. Oh, crikey. So now you know why all the monastics look so stressed and worried all the time. <laughs> so all of these um, are recensions and versions of the Vinaya which has been passed down by the Buddhist schools. And so in the different monastic communities, right? you can imagine that different monastic communities you inherit a group of the basic rules and procedures and principles which the Buddha taught, but you also there are various other ones which are you know maybe added and um, uh, evolve over time. And sometimes you can see that these are quite um, uh, sort of culturally specific. So, for example, there's one vineyard belongs to a school. Do we have it here? One vineyard belongs to a school called the Haimawata School. Do we have that listed there? Maybe we don't have it. Oh, I think it's this one actually. Anyway, it belongs to the Haimawata school, which is the Himalayan school. And in that vineyard, one of the monks goes up to the Buddha and says, it's really cold where we're living. Can we wear warm jackets? And the Buddha says, sure. <laughs> right? Okay, so you can see it's very kind of localized. There's another vineyard, the Dharmaguptaka vineyard, which is also interesting. The Dharmaguptaka vineyard is the vineyard which is followed and practiced in the Chinese and East Asian traditions. And Dharmaguptaka Vinaya, I believe, was descended from a monk called Yonaka Dhamma Rakita, who was a Greek monk. Okay, so it's begun from a Greek school, Vinaya school. And one of the eccentricities of that particular school is it has a lot of rules about the stupa, including rules like don't pee on a stupa. <laughs> which I think we don't have in the Pali Vinaya, but I think we can all agree <laughs> is a good idea, right? So no peeing on the stupa. And another one which is also very interesting is no Buddha images in the toilet. Which I don't know whether you've noticed that, but today I've noticed a few Buddha images in toilets around the place. Look, if you've got a Buddha image in your toilet, no offence, but... Maybe somewhere else might be a more respectful place. I don't think the Buddha wants to spend his life watching. <laughs> watching what doing. It always kind of struck me that like, this is something that you see in Western Buddhism. You never see it in Asian Buddhism. And so I think, that, well, the Greeks in the old days must have been the same. They didn't really get the, the customs, so they were quite okay with peeing on stupas. And so they had to make a rule there saying no peeing on stupas. So anyway, so these things can be sometimes culturally specific. Okay. So all of these things are passed down uh, in the Buddhist traditions and now most of us will be mostly familiar with the Pali texts and the Pali texts are the, the canonical scriptures of the Theravadan school and even though we have these riches of texts from many different places, the Pali texts still have a very special and central place. The Pali texts are the only complete set of scriptures that we have from an early Buddhist school. Other, other scriptures we have parts, sometimes quite a lot of them, but there's still Pali collection, we have the complete collection. Pali collection is the only collection that's preserved in its whole in a unified early Indic dialect. Okay? Other ones are either later dialects or their translations. Pali is the only uh, set of literature that has been passed down together with an extensive and detailed set of commentaries. And the commentaries are indispensable for so answering so many questions, problems in reading them. 
and the Pali texts are also the only scripture which has been a continuous part of a living Buddhist tradition from that time till today. Uh, whereas the, the uh, other Buddhist scriptures, of course, are part of a living Buddhist tradition, but not really in the same way. Like in most of the Mahayana countries, they will pass down the suttas, but they're mostly reading and studying the Mahayana sutras. So that the, the actual early suttas, they're there. And the, you know, many of the teachings are then shared in common with the other suttras, but the actual uh, early suttas themselves are not really so central in the Buddhist culture as they are in the Theravada. So these are some of the reasons why uh, even just from a uh, you know, linguistic or scholarly point of view, that the Pali scriptures will have always been and will always be the cornerstone of our study and understanding of what the Buddha taught and what we call early Buddhism. Now, who can tell me... So I've been talking about Pali suttas. Who can tell me what is Pali? Okay, so it's a language, yeah, from, Prakrit. it's a Prakrit? Dialect. A Prakrit dialect. Excellent, thank Magadabasa. you for that. Magadabasa, yeah. Okay. 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 Anyone else? Yeah. It's closely related to Sanskrit, but uh, it's probably not quite right to say it came from Sanskrit. Certainly, certainly Vedic Sanskrit is one of the main linguistic kind of sources and relations. Uh, what we know of as classical Sanskrit was actually codified after Pali. And most of the... Like Panini lived about a century after the Buddha. Uh, so there was Sanskrit before, but it, you know, it was an evolving language. Like if you, if you know Sanskrit and you read the Rig Veda, it's quite different. Yeah, I mean, it's like reading Chaucer or something like that, if you know English. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a close relation to Sanskrit, yeah. Just, uh, just would like to add that before, uh, to be more specific, before Panini, you say it codified the Sanskrit. Actually, mm. before Panini, there were other Sanskrit grammars. Right. Many grammars, they were much more bulky and extensive and big. Mm. So when Panini came, came, came he basically created uh, Panini Sutra, which were very concise. So it's not exactly to say that Panini codified Sanskrit, but he basically uh, condensed all the prior grammatical knowledge into Panini Sutra. Right, yeah, and the, and the Pali Suttas refer to those early grammars, yeah. But we don't actually have any of them. Yeah, because yeah. there were no interest. After Panini Sutras, there was no interest in yeah. Right. So, okay. So, we have some uh, information on understanding what Pali... Does anyone here... Obviously, you guys know quite a bit what you're talking about. Does anyone here speak Pali or read Pali? You do? Excellent. Nice webinar. Anyone else? No? Just checking. All right. So, Pali. Now, the Pali... Uh, Texts that we read, okay, let's have a look at a Pali text. So here we have this Vinaya text, and I haven't forgotten the thing about the vow of silence either. But the Vinaya, the Pali text is here, and now who can tell me where does this Pali text come from? <laughs> yes, good, 
That's what I like. I like, I like concrete, real, and specific answers. <laughs> right? A server? It is, yeah, yeah. It's just, just, just around here. Yeah, sort of central is going to be faster here than it is anywhere else, probably. Okay, so that's true. It's coming from a server somewhere down the road in Silicon Valley. Okay. How did it get onto there? What is the road? Like, because we have these things. Like, how does it get there? From Sri Lanka, Sixth Council. Anyone else? Oral. Oral. On strips, palm leaves. Okay. So I'm hearing lots of bits of things. All of those bits of things are true, but I'm not really hearing a story. Like, like where did this, how did this text come onto this place? Anyone know? I don't expect you to know. I'm just interested to know if anyone knows. No, incidentally. No, my friend Blake got it ready, so this particular one, so... But fair enough. Anybody else know where this, this, this text... Why can we read the suttas here so in this way? Would have been remembered by a group of Monarchists that were specialised in that collection. Okay. It would have been recited orally and uh, proof-checked okay. by the monks in, in the Sangha so for, to uh, sustain the accuracy of it. Then, uh, at the time when uh, the monks were was in danger of failing in Sri Lanka, and right. there was also a competition from Sanskrit text and a desire to uh, protect the position of Pali text, then they were uh, committed to writing for the first time, and the first century of the common era. Okay. And then uh, the universities after that. Dot, 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 okay. <laughs> they tried to regularize them okay. and get to official standardized versions. Okay, okay, good. Thank you for that. That's filled in a lot of gaps, right? That's very helpful. Still, it, it still hasn't quite got us from there to here, but you said something about, six, six, uh, said something about Buddhist councils and you mentioned something about the Sixth Council. So can somebody tell us what was the Sixth Council? Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It's such deep and penetrating wisdom. <laughs> yes. And tell us more. <laughs> ah, big meeting. Uh, uh, okay, fair enough. Any, can anybody else share any details about the Sixth Council? No? Okay. So the Sixth Council was a meeting which was held in Myanmar in the 1950s. It was over a few years, I think. It was like 55 to 57 or something like that. And it was to celebrate what they call the Buddha Jayanti. So according to the traditional dating, that was two, two and a half thousand years after the Buddha. So as a, there was a global celebration of that in the Buddhist era. And, you know, it wasn't just a, um, you know, an, an arbitrary date or celebration of the Buddha, but also uh, had a lot of cultural significance within the Buddhist countries because for many of those countries it was also celebrating their, their independence from colonialism. Uh, and they had fairly recently escaped the yoke of colonialism and were rediscovering their own 
paths, their own identities and their own uh, uh, also shared spiritual heritage across the Buddhist world. And so there was a lot of ceremonies and events at that time. Uh, and one of the more important or significant ones was the Buddha Jayanti, uh, the, the Sixth Council. So as the number will inform you, there's been a number of councils over the years. The Fifth Council was in Myanmar in the late 19th century. The Sixth Council was in uh, uh, Myanmar in the mid-20th century. And they had monks from Burma, Thailand and Sri Lanka uh, come together to recite the scriptures. Uh, the mainline recension of that was done by the Burmese monks. Um, Mahasi Sayadaw was the uh, questioner and was his monk's name, Wichita something something, was the responder and he recited it all off by heart. And I believe from a friend of mine, a monk on New Venerable Jyoti Adhirasekara was present and according to him, uh, it's not really an international edition as such. It's basically just the Burmese edition and the Sri Lankan monks did their edition and the Thai monks did their edition and so on. So the Sixth Council, what we know of as the Sixth Council edition was essentially the ver version that was prepared by the Burmese monks at that council. Uh, in Sri Lanka, of course, they have the Buddha Jayanti edition, which is the version prepared by the Sri Lankan monks from that council. Anyway, the, very, the differences between them are very minor, of course, but they have a slightly different flavour and the different um, spellings and things like that sometimes. Anyway, so this that edition was created. It was printed as a printed book. Later on, it was digitised by the Goenka people under the Repassana Research Institute. A Thai mob called the Dhamma Society took the uh, Goenka version and then spent three years pre proofreading and correcting it. And they came up with what they call the Mahasangiti edition, and that is what we have on Sutta Central. All right. So I'm telling you this because I think it's important for us to understand something of the material background that underlies and informs our practice. I mentioned before when we we're talking about meditation that if we, when we meditate, the words that we've heard will condition what we meditate with. So we should be careful about that. We should take the time to investigate it. Now, I'm going to ask you another question. Okay, so this was created from a, uh, this is a digital text. It was created from a book, right? A set of books published by the Burmese Sangha Council. And the monks uh, at the Sixth Council were running that show and they had their text that they did that. Ultimately, where they learnt it from was from <coughs> manuscripts, palm leaf manuscripts, or they call older leaf manuscripts. Okay, so the text for since for about nearly two thousand years were passed down on older leaf manuscripts. So when when they were reading those manuscripts, how old do you think those manuscripts were? Like the manuscripts that our modern editions were prepared from, how old do you think that they were? Sixth century. Sixth century. So that would be about fifteen hundred years old. Yeah. How long does a palm leaf last? Good question. Any other? Any other? How how old do you think that these texts that we we're, we're relying like like just stop and think about it for a minute? We think we know what the Dhamma is, right? And it depends on what these texts say. So if we've got it wrong, I mean they had a big problem in Germany in about like the 15th century because they published a translation of the Bible, and they left the word not out of the seventh commandment. 
thou shalt commit adultery. And, <laughs> and everyone was like, God, you've been fooling us for all these years. <laughs> so one word can change quite a bit. So where, how old? We've had, we've had one estimate of 1,500 years. Anybody else can tell us? How, how old do you reckon? A few centuries. Sorry? 40, 50 years. 40, 50 years? And the back a few centuries? 5th century BC? Okay. That's hitting hard there. 5th century BC. That would be great. But I, I like your ambition. Anyone else? Right. That's the oldest physical text. And how old are they? Right, so nearly, nearly 2,000 years old. So they're the Gandhari texts. They're the oldest ones. So we have some of those on sort of central. And you can see um, they have here, Gandhari. And uh, uh, how do we have, should we have that here? So this is, a, this is a modern edition. Again, a digitized edition of the Rhinoceros Sutta in, in Gandhari. And this is prepared from a manuscript that's nearly 2,000 years old. Mm. Of course, yes, this is a Romanized version. With the, the, uh, the uh, images, uh, so this is prepared from scanned images of the manuscript. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they're available. We don't, we don't have them on sort of central, but they're available. We do have a pic, probably have a picture somewhere, yeah. Plus, things that could not be read from the Right, so these are these are broken parts of the manuscript. Yeah. So. Okay, so, okay, so we, we're getting some idea of this, and we haven't still got a, a consensus on this. We've had everything from I think what was it, was forty years you said, to a few hundred, to fifteen hundred, to two thousand five hundred. So what does that tell you? It tells you that we don't know anything. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. I mean, it's curious. I mean, I go around kind of talking about these things all over the place, and you really have to sort of go back and just explain a lot of these really basic concepts, like what's a manuscript? People don't understand what's the difference between a manuscript and a text, right? A manuscript is a physical object that a text is written down in. Anyway, so the... Uh, all of the Pali texts that we've had, which means all of the Pali that you have ever read in your life, comes from manuscripts no earlier than the 18th and 19th centuries. Okay? No earlier than the 18th and 19th centuries. And these were uh, collected, uh, whether by the uh, uh, European scholars of the Pali Text Society or for the various Asian editions, and compile into the modern books that we today call the Pali Tripitaka. Another little interesting detail, I was in Colombo not long ago, six months ago, and they're starting a project for the Tripitaka there. And as part of that, they're traveling all around Sri Lanka to go to all of the temples to find, uh, to identify a particular ed manuscript edition of the Tripitaka on which to base their new edition. Right? So they want to go all the temples and find what's the best set of manuscripts that we can use. Okay? And so far they've been to about 80% of the places in Sri Lanka. 
Remembering that Sri Lanka, of course, is the oldest continuous Buddhist country and the one that has the proudest tradition of the Pali text and everything. And in all of those, they have yet to find a monastery that has a full set of the manuscripts of the Tripitaka. Okay? So, I mean, they've got the full Tripitaka in the printed editions. They've probably got full Tripitakas in the sense of, like, having different manuscripts, but like having one edition where someone has made a set of the Tripitaka in one manuscript they haven't found yet. They found one from the, uh, um, I think, early 19th century, which had all but about two or three books, so had fairly complete. But they hadn't yet found a single monastery that had one coherent edition or manuscript edition of the Tripitaka. Interesting, right? Okay, so uh, the earliest Pali text, which is one of the projects that we're doing the sort of central, is we're doing a project with the... Um, uh, the earliest Pali manuscript, which is what you can see in front of you. And this is a manuscript which is in the, uh, the Colombo National Museum, uh, and we call it the Dutiya Parakama Bahu Chulavaga. So the Chulavaga is a book of the Vinaya. Dutiya Parakama Bahu was a king of Sri Lanka in about 13th century, and he commissioned this uh, text. So this is from the 13th century. And this is the oldest Pali manuscript, the oldest complete book in Pali. There's a few scraps and inscriptions and bits and pieces that are older, but this is the oldest complete manuscript. Hey, that's what you're seeing in front of you. Nice, huh? Yeah, Beautifully written. So to do this, they have to prepare the older leaves and roll them out and get them ready, and then they, they uh, inscribe them with a metal stylus. And then when they're inscribed, then they put a, a dye over it. And uh, brush the dye off, and that's what keeps the colour. So you can see it's, you know, it's obviously it's fragmenting and broken a bit in some places, but by and large, uh, is quite well preserved. So we are currently uh, part of a team in sort of central uh, is working on creating a digital edition of this particular text. And so this will be the first time that there'll be a substantial Buddhist text published from. Uh, a manuscript this early. And this is one of the things we want to learn about, for example, is how, how reliable was the transmission? I mean, we assume the transmission's reliable. We hope it is. And we have good reasons for that. Yeah? I mean, you know, we're not just kind of making stuff up. I mean, there are strong linguistic and cultural and other, and other clues that are telling us that this thing was, was passed down reliably. But we don't have actually the material witness to that. So this is giving us a material witness for a much older text. So, all right. So where were we? Oh, yes, that's right. We were on the Eva Mesutang. So now we've got some idea of what that tradition is of passing down Eva Mesutang and so on. And I want to come to you. Now, that, that manuscript that I was just showing you is the Chulavaga, all right? Uh, and we haven't transcribed it yet, so I won't read directly from that manuscript, but one of the chapters of the Chulawaga, so one of the chapters included in that manuscript, is the account of the First Council. Right? Panchasatika Khandaka. Okay? Yeah? We good? And let's see what it has in that account of the First Council. And remember, I'm coming back to this thing about um, Eva Mesutang. I won't go through the whole story, but it begins with the Buddha passing away. 
with uh, one of the monks saying, uh, uh, some of the monks, some of the monks being distressed and um, horrified, the Buddha was passed away. Other monks saying we should be uh, we should be equanimous when the Buddha passes away. And one of the monks was even saying, uh, now. Don't 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 grieve that the Buddha's passed away. Sumutta Mayang Dana Mahasamanena. Now we are well rid of that great monk. He used to always worry us, Upadduta, by saying, You're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. Now Yang Ichisama Dangarisama We will do whatever we want. <laughs> And what we don't want to do, we won't do. <laughs> Sounds good, right? So, when Mahakasapa heard this monk saying that, he said, let's not do this, let's, let's hold a Sangiti, Dhammancha Vinayancha Sangayama, and before the uh, what is not Dhamma appears and before what is Dhamma disappears, before what is not Vinaya appears and what is Vinaya disappears. So then they called together the monks to have a council. And it is worth noting that the Buddha himself referred to the holding of a council of the Sangiti after he passed away. And he said, this is how you should sustain the sasana, by, having a, by coming together and reciting the teachings in harmony. But when the Buddha spoke of this, he invariably said that after I pass away, the monks, the nuns, the lay men, and the lay women should gather together and they should recite the Dhamma in unity and concord and harmony for the long-lasting of the sasana. That's what the Buddha said. But that's not what happened. What happened was the monks came along and said, no, you guys, out. <laughs> We're going to do it. Interesting, right? Okay, so Mahakasaba was doing it. Then he, they agreed to have a Sangha uh, Sangiti. And he said, he, first of all, they discussed the, the Vinaya and he asked uh, Venerable Upali about the Vinaya. And those of you who are the monastics here especially or who know a little bit of Pali will note that the proceedings of the council are carried out as a Vinaya Kama. Sunatu me abuso sangho. So these are formal sort of legal phrases which are used to announce uh, that this is a Vinaya Act. And after he questions Venerable Upali, he then questions Venerable Ananda. Uh, and uh, of course, you, many of you probably know there's a whole backstory of Ananda and Kasapa and various issues that they had together. So it might have been a little awkward at this point to be doing this whole kind of thing. But anyway, they, this is what they did. So what it says here, and I'm finally returning to your point about the Evo Mesutang, what it says here is, so then Mahakasapa uh, informed the Sangha. Please, may the uh, reference Sangha hear me. So uh, uh, if the Sangha is ready, 
I will uh, question Venerable Ananda about the Dhamma. And then uh, Ananda informed the Sangha, if the Sangha is ready, I will answer when questioned by Mahakasapa. So it's a very kind of orderly procedure, right? So you can see how they're kind of framing it in a way that by making, like this is very much how Sangha Kama works, yeah? And one of the reasons, I'm, I'm reading this for you because it's not just a historical information, but this is giving you an insight into how the Sangha works. Like this is how we do our Sangha Kamas, right? The procedures are very explicit and very clear, and everybody's informed along the way. Yadi Sangha Sapatakalang. It's not like this is what we're doing, deal with it, right? If the Sangha is ready, this is what we do. Now, I mentioned before it's problematic because the monks have already excluded the nuns, the laymen, and the laywomen. Right? And that shouldn't have happened in my view. But they did. So that's a, that's, a, that's a problem with this whole process. On the other hand, there's also positives with the way that things are done. In the way you can see this use of the Sangha Kama, it makes the proceedings very explicit and very consensual. Okay? Everybody agrees. And in Sangha, in the proceedings of the Sangha, no monk and no nun has any authority whatsoever. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as patriarchy or authority within the Sangha, according to the Vinaya. All right? Of course it exists in the world out there, right? But in the Vinaya, no. In the Vinaya, every monk is equal within the monk's assembly. Every nun is equal within the nun's assembly. And any question can be asked, and any decision that's been made must be made by the Sangha as a whole not by the individual monks or nuns. Also important to remember that the monk sangha has no authority over the nun sangha. No monk can ever tell a nun to do anything. Right? <laughs> no senior can tell a junior to do anything. In fact, the Vinaya explicitly says that the juniors should disobey their seniors if they're being asked to do something which is wrong. Right? Even if it's your teacher or your preceptor, and if they ask you to do something which is against the Dharma or the Vinaya, you should disobey them. Okay? So you remember that. If they ever ask you to do something that's wrong, so we're just stopping by the store. I want you to just run in, nick some stuff from the store for me, and then we'll quickly drive away. You, no! Do not do it. Don't say, yes, yes, great guru. No. If they ask you to do something that's wrong, you can't do it. Right? And so... Within the Sangha, as laid down by the Buddha, seniority is about guidance and about respect, but it's not about power. Okay? Anyhow, so Kasapa is asking uh, then Ananda about this. Atako ayasma mahakasapo ayasma anandangeta devocha. Then Kasapa asked Venerable Ananda, Brahma Jalanga vuso Ananda Katta Bahasitan. Where was the Brahma Jala spoken? Now, Brahmajala, of course, referring to the Brahmajala Sutta, currently the first sutta in the Diga Nikaya, that is the first of all of the suttas. Antaracha bhante rajagahang antaracha nalandang rajagarke ambalatikayati. It was spoken, Venerable uh, Sir, in between Rajagaha and Nalanda in the Ambalatika uh, uh, townlet, or, or uh, what is it, hamlet? How do you translate Rajagarke? Anyway, whatever. Uh, what was it spoken about? King, uh, Kangarabha. Uh, it was spoken, or who, who was it spoken in, 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 in regard to? 
the uh, Supya, the wanderer, and Brahmadatta, his uh, student. And then Mahakasapa uh, questioned Venerable Ananda about the, the origin, the source, the nidana of the Brahmajala, and about the persons. Then he goes on, then Samanyapala, Panavaso Ananda, Gatta Bahasitam. Where was the Samanyapala, the second sutra in the discourse, uh, Adiga Nikaya? the fruit, fruit of asceticism, where was that spoken? In Rajagaha and so on. So you can see here it's, it's telling you the procedure. Now, I don't want to take this literally. Actually, the different vineyards will tell a slightly different version of that, okay? But it's giving you something about the, the idea of the procedures. But what it doesn't say there is anything about Eva Mesutang. Right? Actually, it quite excludes that because the setting is spoken as a set of questions and answers between... Kasapa and Ananda. Yeah? And Ananda is not depicted. The earliest record, the actual record we have of the First Council, says nothing about Ananda saying Evo Mesutam. Yeah? So there's no early record of Evo Mesutam being used in that way. The, the description of the context that we have is used in that way. And when, Evan used, when other phrases are used, they're used in that sense. So this is why I think there's quite a strong argument to be said that Evo Mesutam does not mean what Ananda spoke at the First Council, but rather it means that this is an indication of something that's passed down through an oral tradition. Right. So this is how we work with, with textual arguments. Right. So n none of the arguments and ideas and so on that we have about things, they're not certain. Right. We're not working on the basis of certainty, but we're working on the basis of kind of judgment and, and so on and so forth. Does that help understand? The, the earliest commentary? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously we have the Pali commentary, but whether that's the earliest commentary on that particular passage, I wouldn't be sure. Yeah. I'm sure there'd be discussions of it in some Chinese vineyards and things like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, be interesting to look it up. Yeah. Because it's from, I mean, it's obviously it's from the Pali commentaries that we get this idea that that was Ananda who was saying that, right? Uh, so those commentaries are then a thousand years later. So what comes to my mind in, uh, in the Mahayana Sutras, right. this uh, Evangelion Sutam is considered right. as a stamp of authenticity, right. though many from other traditions would say that this sutra is about authentic authority. Right, yeah. Right, so it could well be that that already was regarded in that way as being a stamp for authenticity at that very early time. Yeah, it's, it's quite likely. Yeah. Okay, so how's everyone going? You going okay? You still with me? Yeah, now we, I, can, I can keep on going about this stuff for ages. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about vows of silence. Remember we talked about that before? I haven't forgotten. Do you want to do that? Maybe we'll have a look at a bit about vows of silence and then we can go back to it. Can anybody remember what, which one of the kandakas that's in? Uh, I think it's in the Uposadaka. Uh, no, the, it must be in the, in the Vasoka kandaka. Yeah, it must be. I'm sorry. Before you move on, can I ask? So Please, so, yeah. Yeah. So I'm um, hearing from you, this was not included, thus I have heard, was not included in the original, so it's kind of developed later on. I think so, yeah. Authenticity or what? I mean, 
So it's, it's, you, it was originally used as a signifier to say that this is what's been passed down through the oral tradition. But why do we accept that? Why can't we go back to the original one? Because it doesn't exist. <laughs> you have to because we haven't built a time machine. <laughs> right? Sorry, can you say that again? Oh, interesting. Okay. Right? Right? Okay, so can you, could you understand what I was saying there? Did you hear it? No? Okay, so thank you for that, Aya. It's a very good point. That in, so we have, uh, when, when we, in our modern conditioning, uh, receive a text, we assume that a text is something which is written down. Uh, but earlier in human culture, most texts and, and so on were passed down in an oral tradition. Now, the way that that oral tradition works varies from time to place, right? But oral tradition itself is extremely widespread. Now, the Buddhist texts were passed down in an oral tradition for at least, like, say, 500 years or so before they were written down. And... There were reasons for that. Like, I, I can imagine all of the old monks in those days would have been going, ah, I see these young monks with all this technology they're using and they're writing down these scriptures. It's not like it was in the old days when I was a young monk. We had to, we had to know them all by heart. You know, that's what is in here. Not just write them down on a manuscript and stick it in the monastery library and who cares, you can forget about it. That's why I imagined that the monks would have been saying in those days. <laughs> but it's a big difference, right? If you know something by heart, it's in your heart. Yeah? And you know it. And if you, when you need it, it's there. So actually the oral tradition is still alive, right? I mean, we still memorize Pali texts. We still memorize the Padimokha and so on. But the main means of transmission is the written transmission. Now, because we're used to the written transmission, we tend to assume that the written transmission is more reliable, right? Because we have a book, and the book is still the same as it was last week. But our memory of what we read in that book... Uh, what was, uh, was, was that? So, you know, often when I do Dhamma talks, you know, and I, I, or if I ask somebody after a Dhamma talk, you know, was it a good Dhamma talk? Yeah, it's great. I really enjoyed it. What was it about? Uh, yeah, it was really good, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so we've trained ourselves to, we've, we've really trained our minds in different ways, right? But, of course, it is possible to remember things and we can remember uh, you know uh, passages from suttas and passages from the vinaya for many years with, with letter perfect accuracy I learnt the Padimokha uh, 20 something years ago and uh, you know if I wanted to I could write it down you know almost letter by letter today and if you if you train yourself then you know how to do that and the point that I was making is a very good one. If you make a printed edition, you write something out, like those manuscripts I was looking at before, you know, if a monk makes a mistake, which they do, of course, right? You make a mistake when you're writing those things out. They all have all manuscripts have mistakes in them, then that's it. It's just there. Whereas if you're reciting, 
And if you're reciting together with other people, when you make a mistake, they can hear it. Right? And so this is that idea. It's literally what Sangeeti means, is reciting together. So it's getting together and doing that chanting, and then you're always checking each other and reinforcing your memory. So this is the way that it was passed down. And that, that, that cultural technology of passing down letter-perfect texts was developed to a very high degree in the Indic culture, both in the, among the Brahmins for the Vedas uh, and then in the Buddhists. So I'm just seeing if we've got this. So this is a ch- another. So we're now in the Vinaya, the Vasubhanaika Khandaka, the the uh, chapter on spending the rains retreat, and we are looking at a passage on. Uh, we're looking for, I should say, a passage on. So this is the passage where the this is the part of the Vinaya where the Buddha, um, where the Buddha. No. It's the passage of the Buddha where he um, uh, gives the reasons why the Sangha should be uh, staying in one place for the rains retreat. Can anyone tell me what's the rains retreat about? Okay. Yep. So they don't want the monks walking around and trampling on the plants. Yep. So the Buddha said they should be on retreat at that time. Okay. Yep. Good. Thank you. So that's that. Uh, and maybe it's not in here. Right. Yeah, try that. I don't think so. I think it's in. I think it's in a different Kandika. Ah, oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. The opposite Kandika. Yeah, that's more likely. Um, I prefer to look at the Pane. Um, Okay, so oh, I don't seem to be here on this. All right. Oh, no, no, I don't seem to be here either. That's bad, isn't it? No, 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 no one here can remember the the. I do apologize. We are supposed to be the experts. And yet, as you think it's Mugabata, don't word, no. Sheep. Sheep, 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 sheep. See, all the monastics know exactly the passage that I'm talking about. 
but we're having a little bit of trouble finding it. Look, if I can't find it in a second, I'll, I'll leave it for now and we'll come back to it a bit later on. Too many things about sheep in there. Oh. I'll have to um, have to go and uh, search for it again. I'm surprised I can't find it. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? All right. Okay. So what's the time now? One fifty-three. I tell you what. We've been we've been back here for a little while already. We're going to have to finish off at uh, four, right? So why don't we have a break and we can get up, stretch our legs, have a cup of tea, come back maybe in 15, 20 minutes and then we can maybe do some meditation and then we can finish off the afternoon. Okay? And meanwhile, I will search for this passage which I've embarrassingly been unable to find. Okay, so see you back here in about, uh, what's the time now? About uh, 10 past, 10 past two. Okay? All right. Why can't we find that? Stand up in the bottom part. <laughs> search on sort of central you don't have to use the diacritical marks, you can just type uh, but if you want to type the diacritical marks, yes you can um, I mean this is Linux, so that, that because Linux is free and open source, so it's better than everything else and you can just type it 
But if you have an inferior operating system like Windows or Mac, <laughs> you can install another piece of software and do it the complicated and hard way. Yes. Sorry, yes, hello. Yes, How are you going? What's your name? Tanya. Thank you. 